Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. I think you can tell a lot about people by various things, like, um, like kids' bedrooms, for instance. You could tell a lot about parents by kids' bedrooms, right? Because kids, they don't really get to decorate their own room until maybe 8, 9, and 10. So like younger kids, the bedrooms really speak to the personality or the hopes or the control issues that parents have, right? Like you have, and this isn't to throw stones or to, or to dig anything, but like think about it. You have those like, those like really, um, like really into simplicity and minimalism parents and you go into their kid's bedroom and it feels like a spa and you're like, this is a nicer room than my own bedroom as an adult. Like they have perfectly aligned, unfinished birch wood frames and all the books are like color coded. And then you have other rooms that it just looks like a Crayola box exploded and there's colors everywhere, and there's pictures haphazardly taped to the walls all over the place. And then you have, like, the themed bedrooms. You have the, the princesses' bedrooms, and you have, like, He-Man and She-Ra. Can you tell I was raised in the 80s? Uh, my bedroom when I was a kid, I don't know what this says about my, my family, was clowns. That was a choice. <laughs> um, and some of you who know me might be going, oh, man, that explains so much. <laughs> Uh, and you could be right. You really could be right. But I don't want you to think my mom was like a sociopath or anything. Really, the clowns kind of look like this. Um, so, I mean, as adults, we still go, ugh. But, like, they're really not that scary, right? Like, my mom, she collected these, like, ceramic, gold filigree collectible clowns. But they didn't look like this, which is often, I think, when we, when we hear clown, we immediately go, like, ugh. You know, we go there, right? Um, I had a, one of my clowns that was actually mine looked like this guy. Still a little, little, little bit creepy, right? But stuffed, like long arms. And I love this dude. He was, he was my homie. Like he was my, my playmate. He, I would cuddle with him. Like he was just, he was my friend when I was a little kid. That was until my dad in his infinite wisdom let me watch the movie Poltergeist when I was five. And if you've ever seen Steven Spielberg's Poltergeist, um, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like there is a clown that looks fairly similar to this clown that tries to pull a young boy under his bed and eat him. And that was the last time I ever slept well. <laughs> like, I have been terrified of clowns ever since. And so I did what I think a lot of kids typically do when they get scared. After begging their parents, like, please, can we change my room? And they say, no, we don't have a big enough house, and blah, 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 blah. I marshaled all of my stuffed animals, and I lined them up at the foot of my bed and at the head of my bed and along the side because I knew then my stuffed animals would protect me. Because that's what we do when we're kids, right? Like, we go when we're scared, we pull the blankets over our heads, we make sure that if we have a stuffed animal or a favorite blanket or something, we just, we make sure that that thing is with us all the time. And we, we kind of learn that, that aspect of growing up, that there are certain things that just make you feel safe. They make you feel like you're going to be okay, that everything's all right. And then there's like this weird societal line where it's unacceptable to have stuffed animals as an adult or something. So we start to grab other things, right? We grab as many other things as we can to be dependent on because it still, it just makes us feel safe. It makes us feel like we have a semblance of control. It makes us feel like we're okay, that we're going to get through things. And I think we do this because deep down, 
Inside all of us, it doesn't matter how old you are, deep down there's still a little kid who's just scared out of their mind that they don't know what they're doing, that something is out there to get them, and so they want to feel protected. And so we grab and we search and we hold on to things as tight as we can. I think one of the most important questions that we can wrestle with and ask ourselves is on whom or what are we most dependent? And that question, if we allow ourselves to dig into it, can get a little uncomfy. Because when we allow ourselves to ask that question and dig into that question, what what happens is that we start to identify things that we have been dependent on, things that we have held onto that are actually causing us a lot of harm, that are causing us a lot of pain, or that are covering up things that really should be healed, but we're not allowing them to be healed. And we just keep grabbing onto things because that means if, if we don't, that we'll have to change. And change is hard. Change is difficult. So that's the question I want us to lean into today. On whom or what are you most dependent? All those things that exist in our life that, that make us feel safe, that make us feel protected, that give us a sense of control. And look, they're not all bad, right? Like some of those things, it's just the natural aspects of our mind and, and, and a healthy life of finding people and things that we can depend on. Some of them are, are very life-giving But the question still remains on who or what are you most dependent? We're picking back up in the book of Luke. We've been working our way through uh, the gospel of Luke. We've been following Jesus' journeys and his teachings, and we're going to be picking up at chapter 6. And there's this really big overarching theme in the book of Luke of God's desire for people to be reconciled to him. And beyond that, not just the reconciliation component, it's this idea that We can find our hope and contentment and our purpose because we are following Christ in spite and despite of our external circumstances. We we grow up in a culture, we grow up in, in a life where we cling on to our various stuffed animals because we think those are the things that are ultimately going to be there for us, that we could truly depend on. And the reality is, is that it's it's God that it's Christ that we can depend on most, but we often cho- oftentimes choose not to. So let's start reading uh, Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets, and he's referring back to the Old Testament. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets." Now, for some of you, these verses might sound really familiar, and not because of Luke, but because of the book of Matthew. There's something called the Sermon on the Mount that a lot of people are fairly aware of. It's like Jesus' most well-known sermon, and there's a lot of similarities. And so a lot of times people will read this in Luke and go, oh, this is just kind of a a rehashing of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really easy to believe that, but there's actually enough evidence in the book of Luke, and Luke is very precise in his language for a reason, to say that this is actually a different message. It is similar. It's definitely similar. I know. It's upsetting, like, that it's different. I totally get it. It's similar, but it's different. It's a different context. It's a different setting. 
And so there's a few different things that, that kind of clue us into that. One is how uh, Luke really describes the setting. But one of the things I want to draw, draw our attention to is that he specifically says he looked down at his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples, meaning those that are following him and choosing to live the way that God has told them to live. And that's very specific language. That's not to say that there weren't other people there following Jesus. That doesn't mean that there weren't other people there seeking to be healed or just trying to check Jesus out. But it's important for us to understand that in this particular section of Scripture that we're looking at, Jesus is speaking to those who are following him. Now, for us today, that means that some of these direct words are directed specifically at people who are following Christ. That doesn't mean there's not other stuff in here for all of us. I just want to make sure that we understand the setting and the context. The other thing that's important to understand is that this list of blessings and woes is not qualifications, meaning um, Jesus isn't saying the only way that you're going to be blessed is if you're poor, is if you're hungry, is if you're sad and weeping and grieving, and if people hate you. That, that's not, this isn't a list of qualifications, nor is he saying that you can't have and experience wealth in your life or a, a, an element of fullness in your life or that you can't laugh and enjoy life or have people speak well of you. What he's getting at here is really driving our attention to the fact that to truly receive the blessing of God, it is because you are following God. And we see throughout Scripture that people who are poor, that are hurt, that are marginalized, are close to the heart of God, but God is very clear. The blessings of God are reserved for those who are actually following God. And sometimes that gets a little bit lost in translation. One of the things that um, I think we need to be clear on, and this might be uncomfortable, um, is there is a difference between Christian and disciple. There are a lot of people who will say that they are Christian. There have been a lot of people who say that they're a Christian, meaning that they believe that Jesus existed, that he died for the sins of humanity, that he rose again conquering death. They believe in the promise of eternal life, but it doesn't actually change them. They've got to the starting point, and they've really stayed there. And then there are disciples. Disciples are the ones who got to the, the starting point but then took Jesus' words to heart that we read in Mark, where we're called to pick up our cross daily and follow him, that we are meant to choke on the dust of Jesus, that we take our cues and our lessons and our learnings from the life of Jesus as how we're supposed to live. We see in our culture very clearly right now how often people will say, I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And yet the majority of their life does not represent the truth of Scripture at all. The way they conduct themselves doesn't reflect the truth of Scripture at all. That's not to throw shade. That's just the reality that exists for us, the temptation that exists for us. There's lots of us that believe that Jesus exists, that he died and was raised again for the sins of humanity, that there is an element of grace and hope that exists, but we don't want to change. We still want to do what we want to do. And so when we read these blessings and woes, it's important for us to understand the distinction that there is a difference between someone who believes and someone who believes and follows. Lastly, the, the, the last thing I really want to make sure we understand before we move forward and get into some of the nitty-gritty is the word blessed. Because really the word blessed and blessing and favor 
has kind of been hijacked in, in a lot of ways by some people, that when we hear the word blessed or blessing, it's really easy to automatically go, oh, so I'm going to be rich, right? I'm going to get to wear $2,000 kicks, drive a Tesla. Like, I'm going to be able to do all those things. I'm never going to have any problems in my life. I'm going to have a position of authority and power. I'm going to su- succeed in every area of my life. And that really is not the definition of blessed in Scripture. The definition and, and the context that we get of the word blessed, and really what we see here, it refers to the one who is the object of grace. Meaning it's not about all the things that you get or the things that you get to enjoy. It's the fact that you recognize your need for grace and the acceptance of grace from God. Blessed refers to, and we see blessed are those who are poor, Blessed are those who weep now. It's meaning they are experiencing the life-changing reality of the grace of God. And this is why that matters. When you're in those moments, right? doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. When you're in those moments of, of deep poverty or hunger or, or just grieving, when, when you feel like an outcast, when you feel like you've just hit the bottom of the barrel, that your life can't get any worse, that you don't know what you're going to do, you are intrinsically more aware of your need for help. And we know this. We've all been there in different times of our lives. When we're at the bottom of the barrel, when we're in that pit, we're just intrinsically more aware of our need for help. And in those moments, we have an opportunity to decide who or what we're actually going to be dependent on. And sometimes that's a really difficult decision to make. Throughout Jesus' life, we see him flipping the script Flipping the script on the embraced um, value system throughout culture. And in these verses, that flipping of the script is, is pretty stark. Because what would happen back then is not terribly unlike what happens today. In that, um, if you were poor, if you hunger, if you suffer from some kind of illness, if you're an outcast because of some reason, if you're experiencing grief on a regular basis, the general belief was that God or the pantheons of God, the people, gods that people believed in, um, they just figured God hated you, that you were cursed by God because of something either you've done or something your parents have done or something your community has done or something that your ancestors have done. And there's really no hope for you. It's basically that's your lot in life. If you experience any of those things, if you experience poverty, if you experience hunger, if you experience grieving, if you experience hatred towards you, it's because that's your lot in life. And there's nothing you can do about it. And Jesus says, hey, let me turn this upside down so you can actually get a picture of the kingdom of God so that you could actually get a correct picture of reality. So what we're going to do is we are going to put up the blessings and woes on the screen as best as we can. And we're just going to kind of work through these a little bit and kind of ping pong back and forth. So we first have, uh, blessed are those who what? Should it's up there? Poor. <laughs> Thank you. Blessed are those who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of of God. Now, when we hear that word poor, our minds are immediately going to go to a financial situation, right? And our assets. And that totally makes sense. And that's totally fine. But the Greek word here, and really its Hebrew counterpart, the definition of this word poor is lowly and beggarly and bent. So this, this word poor is used throughout scripture to define way more than just financial assets and money. It is used to define 
low social status, those that are sick, those that are considered outcasts, those that are experiencing poverty in a physical, mental, emotional, or societal way. That is the kind of poverty that God is speaking to right here, that Jesus is identifying. And what he's saying is that in those moments of poverty, when you're in that pit, when you're feeling like you're just at the bottom of the barrel, that you don't know what else can happen, when you have made God the thing that you are most dependent on, he meets you there. He meets you in that pit. And he says, you're not alone. In fact, you have a present and a future blessing. In fact, right now, you are experiencing me and my grace because I am here with you. In fact, I'm not just here with you. I'm going to send other people to be here with you as well. You don't have to dig yourself out of this pit. Allow me to lift you out of this pit. And then what happens? Think about it. Think of your own life. If you were a follower of Christ, you've been in these moments before of poverty. And maybe you try and block them out and you don't want to remember them because they are painful, right? They're, they're, they're traumatizing in some ways. And in those moments, you're just like, I, I don't know where God is, but I'm, I'm going to choose to trust him. I'm going to choose to depend on him. And you don't always feel it. You don't always know it. But then in hindsight, when you look back, what happens? You see the fingerprints of God through every aspect of the darkest situations of your life and how you were never actually alone. And you experience grace in a real and tangible way that changes your life. And then what happens is that the scales from our eyes fall off and we begin to see other people in pits. And we go, let me help you. I've been there. You're not alone. Let me tangibly be the hands and feet of Christ for you because I've experienced God's grace. Let me extend that same grace to you and we continue on further and further. Blessed are those who are poor, for yours is present blessing, is the kingdom of God. But woe to those who are rich. Woe to you who are rich. We live in a culture that rewards money, that rewards position and influence. And it doesn't take long to read or hear stories of people who are so concerned about ensuring their wealth, whether it's financial wealth or wealth of status or wealth of position, to the point of the outright neglect of the people around them, to the outright trampling of the people around them, because this fear kicks in. If this isn't what I have, then who am I? And Jesus is saying, listen, if that is what you're dependent on, if your wealth and your position and your authority and your power and your influence, if that is what you're most dependent on, understand that is all you're ever going to have. You won't get to experience the grace of God and the blessing of God because you're so fixated on protecting yourself and your wealth and your status and your position that you miss the joy that comes with the grace of God. Then we have... Blessed are those who, what's up there? Hunger now. And that's important. Blessed are those that hunger now. And, blessed the, and woe to those that are full now. Blessed those that are hungry now. This word hunger is a physical hunger. It's talking about actual sustenance. This is a time of, of the haves and the have-nots. 
The reality is most of Jesus' early followers were not people of means. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of food. They had to rely on the goodness of other people. Many were considered slaves. Many were considered outcasts. They were ostracized in so many different ways. They just didn't have a lot. And God is saying, look, I know that you're hungry. I know that you're hungry for food. I know that you're hungry for intimacy. I am here with you. I know that you hunger now. It's temporary. I will be in this pit with you. I will provide for you. It may not be in the way that you expect. It may not be with a steak dinner and what you want. It might be tofu and roasted eggplant, and you're just going to have to live with it and be grateful. But God is saying, I am in this pit with you. As you hunger now, continue to depend on me and trust me that in this moment I am with you, that I am not far from you, and I will surround you with other people who know and love me to care for you and to walk this journey with you. And again, think of those times in your life when you've been so hungry. Whether that's for actual nourishment, whether that's for intimacy and relationships, but you chose and you made the decision to follow Christ and continue to depend on him most of all. You look back and you go, I don't know how I survived that moment, but I could see the fingerprints of God. And I see how he moved through that time. And I see how even in those moments, my life is transformed so that I could show up for different people. But woe to you who are full now. We live in a gluttonous society. Let's just be real. Most of us love to binge watch TV show and movies. Don't play like half of you didn't like stream all of Stranger Things season four the last week. Okay. Like, you know, you did. Because that's what we do. That's the cultural norm. We, my family did. We watched Stranger Things season four. I'm getting ready to watch Solo, or not Solo, oh my gosh, Obi-Wan. Like, there's so many things that we just consume. We recklessly spend. We want more and more and more. We want to experience everything. We want to consume as much as we possibly can. And I think if we're honest, if we just kind of dig through all of the junk to understand why, we know that the reason we want to consume is so that we don't have to feel. Because we have deep wounds and brokenness and hurt. And we don't know what it means to be dependent or rely on someone that can actually bring healing to those spaces. And so instead we try and numb ourselves with as much consumption as we possibly can. But then what happens? You realize how much time you've wasted. The credit card bill comes. The scale goes up. We get extra storage units so that we can store our stuff. We take stuff to goodwill so we could buy even more. We find whatever we can to consume to continue to numb the pain. And Jesus is saying, look, if that is what you are most dependent on, if you are most dependent on being full, that's not going to last. The bottom will drop out, and then where will you be? Because that's all you're going to have left. Blessed are you who weep now. I think this is something that most of us can relate to. If you're a follower of Christ, I think every one of us have probably been in those experiences where we have such guttural pain and anguish. Maybe it's because of a lost job or having to say goodbye to friends. Maybe it's mourning a dream that never became a reality. Maybe it's because we've lost a child or a spouse or a a parent 
or a sibling, maybe it's because of tragedy in our community or in our country or in our world, we have these moments where we are so overcome by grief, so overcome by pain, that we don't know what to do. And God meets us in our pain. A couple of weeks ago, we had a moment of lament because of the shootings that have happened in our country. And the biblical idea of lament is being able to take all of that emotion, the hurt, the anguish, the anger, the frustration, and casting that on God. And God says, I am enough to take all of that. And in those pits of despair, in those pits of weeping and pain and frustration, God meets us and he loves us and he cares for us and his spirit comforts us in those moments. And he sends other people around us to care for us and love us. There's a reason it says the joy comes with the morning, but if you don't allow yourself to actually feel the pain, if you don't allow yourself to mourn and lament and weep, you're really just trying to be dependent on something else when God is saying, it's okay. It's okay to cry. It's okay to not be okay. I will hold you. I will carry you. And if you're a follower of Christ, I hope that you've seen that in your life. And again, when you look back in those moments when you don't think you're going to make it, but then in hindsight, you see the fingerprints of God and how he used that to transform you and you were able to show up for people in ways that can't even be expressed in words. When people experience grief, it is often the people that have experienced grief that can most empathize and sit with and show the love of Christ to people in their pain. But woe to you who laugh now. Throughout history, regardless of country or empire or time, there are these moments of just intense frivolity and excess. I think we are in one of those moments in our country now and probably in the West as a whole where it seems like the greatest goal in life is to enjoy as much as you possibly can, to just suck the marrow out of life and to find however many ways you can get to experience pleasure in your body and mind. Where we just want to chase after all of those things for the good times. And look, I want to be really clear. God, God wants us to laugh. God has a sense of humor. For crying out loud, look at our bodies. They're hilarious. Like hilarious, okay? Like God wants us to laugh. Throughout scripture, we see stories of humor. We see sarcasm in the Bible, which I'm not saying I use to justify my own sarcasm, but I do. Like there is humor. There's all kinds of funny stuff. God wants us to experience the happiness and joy that comes with his creation and the the joys of life and all the things that come with it. He's not saying he doesn't want us to laugh. He's saying that when our focus, when we are most dependent on just experiencing the most we can for our own benefit. That's all you're going to have. You'll lose relationship. You'll still feel lost. You're still going to have the same questions of what does it all mean? What is it all for? What's the purpose of it all? When that's what you're dependent on, that's all you get. And it doesn't last. And when it doesn't last, then we spin out, right? When the laughter ends, we spin out and we start to play the blame game and we don't know what to do and we get paralyzed with fear and we we start to stress out because, oh no, and so we book another trip or we buy another bottle or we go find another person to hook up with 
And we just keep going and going and going and nothing satisfies. It won't take long, if you haven't already realized this, to realize that yourself can't satisfy yourself for very long. And then finally, we come to, blessed are those when people hate you and when people speak well of you. Blessed are you when people curse you because of me. And I want to be really clear about this. This is not a prescription for Christians to seek out rejection. Jesus is not saying, hey, go be a total wad to everyone around you so that you could get rejected and then receive this blessing. This is meant to be a comfort because let's call a spade a spade, shall we? There are a lot of people in our world, there have been a lot of people in culture throughout history and throughout church history who have said they are Christians and who have said that they are hated because of their belief. And really, they're hated because they're jerks. They're not hated because of the truth that they hold. They're hated because of their tone and their demeanor and the way in which they come at people and treat people as less than human, as less than somebody that God wants to be reconciled to. And listen, this again, this isn't to throw shade. This isn't to throw stones. This is the temptation that exists for every follower of Christ to fall into. It does not take much, (laughs) it doesn't take much for us to stop following Christ and start to follow somebody else. It doesn't take much for us to stop depending on God most of all and start depending on other things instead. And in turn, what happens is that we come back to this place of belief, but not action. But, and maybe you don't know this, there are millions of people in this world and throughout history that are disciples of Christ, who have followed Christ, who face judgment and ridicule for their faith and their belief every day, who are ostracized from their families, who face persecution that we can't even imagine here in America. In some countries, they face torture and prison and even death. The idea of martyrs still exists in our culture, and that's the thing that has existed for the people of God since God created the world. God doesn't say say following him is always going to be easy. What he says is that we will be blessed because we follow him, that we are not alone because we follow him, because we experience grace because we follow him, and that we have an eternal promise of a new heaven and a new earth and eternity with him because we follow him. But the people of God, when they choose to actually follow God, to chase after him, to become apprentices of Christ and learn what it means to live that life, the reality is some people just aren't going to know what to do with you. And God says this to give us comfort in those moments. That even in those moments when you feel like an outcast, leap for joy because you know you are doing the right thing. You know that you're on the right path and be reminded of the present promise as well as the future promise. But woe to you if everyone speaks well of you. And again, this isn't one of those things where God's not not saying like, hey, everyone should speak terribly of you. He wants people to speak well of you. But this is something I think we all can fall into pretty easily, right? We all are silent in some cases because we don't want to rock the boat. We want to fit in. 
Or we go the opposite way and we become obnoxiously loud because the crowd is obnoxiously loud and, and we want to we wanna fit in because deep down we all want to be liked. Even the people that say they're not people pleasers, they're still a part of us, all of us, this human nature to be liked, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And when we're dependent on so many other things instead of dependent most on God, it's really easy for us to begin to conform ourselves to whatever groups we identify with most to make us feel better, to make us feel like we're a part of something so that people will see us well, so that they will speak well of us. That's a danger that exists for all of us. Look, I've been called a racist because I believe scripturally that the people of God have a responsibility to speak out and address racism and systemic issues in our culture. And I believe that stems from the truth of Scripture. I've also been called a racist because I don't believe in every cultural narrative that is being spoken right now. I've been called a homophobe because I believe in a traditional sexual biblical ethic. And I've also been told that I'm too accepting of the LGBTQ plus community because I still see them as people who deserve love and respect and care and the opportunity to experience the grace of God. And I want to treat them the same way I would treat anyone. I want to treat them the same way that I want to be treated. And I want to be in relationship with people so that I could be the hands and feet for them and show them the reality and the goodness and the hope of God. I've been called a feminazi because I believe that, that women are important and they have intrinsic value and that they are uh, so incredible and so many of the things that they bring to the table and that they, they don't deserve less than men and, and they're certainly not responsible for a man's purity. But I've also been called uh, a, a, a complete patriarchal swine because I do believe that men and women are different. And I believe we're created for different things and we bring different things to the table and we bring different ideas and insights that are of equal value. And, and biblically, I believe that God cares about the unborn. I've been called a socialist because time and time again through Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that people that are broken, that are hurting, that are poor, that are widowed, that are orphaned, are so closely and tied to the heart of God that the people of God have a responsibility to do whatever they can to care for them and to serve them and to love them well and to walk this road, even if that means sacrificing my own freedoms and privileges. I've also been called a fascist because I don't think America is the worst place in the world. I don't think it's perfect. I, also, I just don't think it's the worst place in the world. I've been told that I'm too nice. I've been told that I'm too mean. I'm told that I want everyone to be happy. I want no one to be happy. I only want myself to be happy. I've been told I'm too conservative. I've been told I'm too liberal. I've been told I'm too Christian. I've been told I'm not Christian enough. I don't share all of that as a point of pride. I say all that to say that if your eyes are fixated on Christ, that if you've made the decision to chase after him, to be his apprentice, to be his disciple, to not simply believe, but to move forward and follow him. People aren't going to know what to do with you. You're going to make people uncomfortable, not because of your tone and demeanor. That's why you're making people uncomfortable. That's a different talk for a different day, but because you don't fit the mold that they expect you to be in, and it butts up against what they want you to be. And in those moments... In those moments, when you are keeping God the one you are most dependent on, 
but you're not fitting in with other groups, the temptation is to start picking up stuffed animals again. To make other things more important so that you feel like you can fit in. The word of God, what Christ demonstrates for us, the lives we are called to live, oftentimes will seem offensive. Offensive to power structures, to political parties, social issues, and sometimes, and honestly, I think most of all, offensive to our pride, our emotions, and our personal freedoms. Jesus turns the world upside down, and it's uncomfortable at times. It's messy at times. And look, we grew, most of us have grown up in America, right? Um, maybe if you're watching from home, you didn't grow up in America. Maybe you're watching this from, I don't know, Mexico or, or Peru or wherever, But most of us in here today have grown up in America. We're we're baked in with this idea of independence, right? We pick up so many things to be dependent on to make ourselves feel like we're independent. We grow up thinking this idea that whoever has the most toys wins, whoever has the most social status wins, whoever has the fullest life wins. They're the ones that are conquering things, the ones that get to go on the most vacations and live out of a van with no responsibilities for the rest of their life. They're the ones that win. That's, That's the belief that's baked into us, this idea of independence. And God says, no, you've got to twisted. It's not about your independence. It's not about your personal freedom. It's not about all these other things that you want to be dependent on that just continue to let you down that can't satisfy. It's about dependency on me. It's about dependency on him. And how fulfilling and satisfying that can actually be. And I want to be clear, that's not to say that you shouldn't depend on anything else in life at all. It's really about what are you most dependent on. Because I hope that you're also dependent on people in your life. We're, we're designed to be in community. God calls us to be in community. And listen, I pray that all of you have rich relationships in your life of people that are, that are nothing like you in many ways, that believe different things, that think different things. But I also pray intensely for this church that the people of this church have other disciples in their life who are walking this road with them, who will challenge them and encourage them, who will sit with them in the pit and help them crawl out of it, who will be the tangible hands and feet to them and to the world around us. What are you most dependent on? God's blessing, God's promise of hope, purpose, healing, and eternal life rests on those who rest in him. So again, let me ask you, on who or what are you most dependent? On who or what are you most dependent? 